Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Today, we continue our special series, Transit Unplugged in the United Kingdom. And I'm pleased today to be speaking with Simon Reed, who is the head of technology and data for surface transport at Transport for London, TFL, the largest public transportation system in the United Kingdom. Simon's responsible for helping handle six million passengers a day on their bus service. And our conversation, I think you'll find very interesting. He discusses in-depth congestion charging, how it works in London and how helps fund their public transport system. We get an update on contactless cards and how their system has gone completely cashless. And we talk about what he sees as the future of public transport. I think you'll be surprised at some of his predictions. All that on this special edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort, your host of Transit Unplugged, and today I'm excited to be in London, the capital of the world, really, and I'm with Simon Reed, who is the head of technology and data of surface transport for Transport for London, which uh, is probably one of the oldest transit systems in the world. I know it's the oldest tube in the world, uh, and one of the biggest ones. Simon, thanks so much for uh, being a guest on the show today. No problem. Yes. Some of you may know Simon from his reputation in the industry of being one of the most brilliant minds in the transport industry, and uh, we're going we're gonna to plumb that mind today and find out some of the secrets of how you're making this big operation roll. Simon, could you first tell me some about the scope of TFL itself and what your responsibilities are here? Sure. Um, Transport for London is one of the executive agencies of our democratically elected mayor. Um, We're responsible really for, I suppose in a nutshell, for keeping London moving. So our responsibilities range from the tube stations, uh, sorry, the tube network, which you mentioned earlier. There is the bus network. There is the cycle hire scheme. We also have um, a cable car running over the Thames. We're also responsible for the trams, the Docklands Light Railway. Basically, all of those transport services sit under us, along with quite a few components of the road network as well. So it literally is the agency that makes London's transport run and operate for the city. And what's your role in all this? My role is I'm head of technology and data for surface transport. So I work for Shashi Verma, who's our chief technical officer. And my responsibility is for the technology that we use to manage the estate above ground, really. Anything that's not underground is uh, sits under my uh, portfolio. Okay. And... Um... How long have you been here? And kind of, you know, that gives you a little bit of your history of your career. Uh, I joined here in 2006, and I came here for just a short-term project, as lots of people do. Here you are um, 13 years later. Yeah, 13 years later, and I still am. So I came here as project director to implement the iBus system. So that was a system that we bought from Siemens and then became Trapeze, which basically runs all of our onboard vehicle tracking, it runs our passenger information system, and also enables us to pay all of our franchise bus operators all through the same system. So I joined in 2006 to do that. First vehicles were running in 2007. It's been fleet-wide since 2009. So we've had uh, that service ubiquitously in London ever since, and um, it's still going on now. What did you do prior to that for coming here to TFL? Oh, nothing to do with transport. I I work for a managed service company. I was running document management systems, workflow, and uh, process engineering for uh, local authorities and uh, across the UK. What would you say in the 13 years you've been here, probably more recently, what are a couple of things you're the most proud of that you've been able to implement to help 
keep London moving, like you just yeah. said. Breaking that apart, there, there was a few things. I mean, the just the scale of getting that project in and getting it working at all was we knew it was quite a nice, uh, quite a a major thing to be involved with to actually achieve that in the timescales that we did and deliver the benefits effectively on time and on budget. And it's still held up as probably one of the largest implementations that are globally with a single system and a common customer operational view. How many um, passengers a day do you haul on the buses? We're just over six million a day. Okay. Um, you know, so it's a large operation and it's all franchised as well, which is a bit of a different model yeah. than you have elsewhere. So what we're all, all doing all the time is we are tracking vehicles so that we can arrange to pay our bus operators for the kilometres that they operate and the frequencies or headways that they're, um, they're delivering for us. I've kind of saved the best for last, I guess. I've been around the country visiting a lot of the systems, and the, like you said, the bus network is set up differently in London yeah. than it is elsewhere. Tell us about that difference and how in the other places in the country of the UK, kind of private bus operators can come in and set up their own routes and schemes and their fares, but how does it work here in London? Right, so probably the first thing is the responsibility. So our legal structure is such that Transport for London is responsible for defining the network, the bus network that we have in London. So that's looking at the de demographics, looking at the needs, looking at people where go, go from and to, and matching the resource against that. So, so you decide where the routes are. We decide are. where the routes are. Okay. Now, once we... Routes? Routes. We, yeah, yeah, we decide where the routes are. Well, in America, we say routes, sorry. Um, <laughs> we do this sort of uh, uh, the planning perspective to get where the frequencies, where the routes should run from and to, and okay. how that should be put together. And then we go to the market and say, this is the service that we want, and the bus operators respond back in saying, yes, we can operate a service from this depot that costs you this amount of money and can deliver that. So the operators create the schedules, look after the resources and do all of that. TFL takes the revenue risk and we provide certain services on board, namely the ticketing fares collection system and this AVL system that I was describing earlier. We provide those systems to sit on the, on the operator's vehicle. Okay. Do they provide the facilities or do you... No, we, we, we provide that equipment. So they basically buy, they, they purchase the buses and most of the other resources that are involved, but we supply a common system for, as we said earlier, the... Um, the actual garages the that they operate? And garages vary. Most of the operators have got their own. Okay. Some of them are leased. Some of them are put together. Some okay. of them are actually, again, because of this responsibility for making the city move, if we haven't got a, a garage in a particular place, maybe TFL has access to money, we might get involved with the development of an area. But then the operator would be leasing that from us yes. um, to decide okay. to take that forward. So do you pay them or do they, when you say we take the revenue risk, you're collecting the fares and then you just pay them a set amount? Correct. To we run can, the whole thing? That's right. They're paid by the kilometres operated, which okay. again, because we've defined and agreed what the schedule is, it's an arithmetic process to right. say from the number of trips you should have operated this number of kilometres, you pay them accordingly. And usually, it changes sometimes, but most of the contracts have part element for kilometres operated and part for performance, which is either adherence to a timetable or in most, over 90% of London's routes, it's adherence to a frequency um, plan. So are they keeping whatever right. the frequency is across the whole range of a network throughout the time periods that there are through the day? What is your like? What is your budget? I guess uh, for the operator. Well, well, that I mean that exercise alone, paying the operators is about two billion pounds. Wow, a year sterling. Yeah, yeah. a year. 
That's something. And do you know, I know that you're not responsible for the tube or the subway system here, but do you know how many passengers a day ride in that? Yeah, it's a bit less than what we have on buses. So it's so, more on bus. Yeah, it's more on bus. So so of the, if you look at the passenger modes, if, sorry, if you look at all the journeys that take place in London in a yes. day, bus is the largest public transport mode okay. with tube second to that at the minute. And uh, we were discussing just before we started this recording, bus ridership has been in decline. It's been in decline in London in the same way that it has in, uh, in lots of other areas. Tube ridership at the moment is staying quite steady after um, a bit of a dip that we've had. So I think there's there's changing demographics are affecting the way that the network is being used. Did you used to get federal funding for operations and then it went away? Yeah, within the UK there was we have a process that is timed around, uh, say used to be timed around political events, but there's quite a lot of political events in the UK at the minute which has made that go a little bit out the window. But there are certainly, around the political the national government timetable, so when they have elections and how long terms go, there is what's called a periodic spending review. The last time around, which was two elections ago, I think, he says, conferring to notes, transport didn't do very well. If there's a slice of the pie, transport did not do as well, and transport in London didn't do very well at all. So we used to receive a direct operational subsidy, and that has been phased out over the last four years. So we're now entering a situation where we have no operational subsidy. So what that means is we do have some rates retention and a few other elements like that, but we have no direct operational subsidy. So we have to make all the services pay out of either pay box, for want of a better word, um, plus our external revenues for property rentals and things like that. Basically, that has to pay for everything That's that we interesting. have. Was that part of the reason why the congestion charge was added in to help add some revenue locally from the city? No, congestion charge predated that. It goes okay. back to the previous mayor, previous mayor, two, two mayors ago. So most of our mayors, are mayors elected every four years. The last couple of them have enjoyed at least two terms. So yes, it was Ken Livingston when he decided to put this this in. So Ken was mayor around 2000 when Transport for London was first established. And it was one of the things that he wanted to do was to bring in a congestion charge. Some of the monies from that helped him expand the public transport network because it wasn't too long ago, there was about 6,000 buses in London. By the end of his term, there was over 8,000 buses. So mm. there was a massive fleet expansion. And by deterring, you know, he was, he was absolutely committed to expanding public transport and reducing the dependency on the private car. And the congestion charge was a way of achieving that, that goal. I have so many questions in my mind I want to ask you. Do you know what your fare box recovery ratio is as a percentage of your overall cost to operate? Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think for the bus, you have to break it up by network as okay. soon as you start talking about this. Yes. So the bus network runs as a subsidy. I talked to you about £2 billion worth of cost. It's yes. around five to 600000 of uh, subsidy that goes into that from other parts of the network and the other So you're, you're making 70% maybe of, uh, of your money back in uh, fares? Well, I think that there is an argument that says if you look at it in terms of you took renewals out completely, it's... it's what do you mean by renewals? Well, obviously, you have, through that contract process with our operators, you're effectively oh. renewing vehicles yes. as well. Okay, if yeah, you yeah. lifted that element out of it, it's even higher than the 60-70% recovery we make. Wow. And obviously it varies by route. There's no question about it. Some routes yes. are heavily subsidized. So that is just an amazing number. This whole, yeah. you know, in America, we think you're doing awesome if you get 35% fare back right. recovery on a bus. But you all are very aware of the ridership and you probably have standards in place where if a, if a route isn't producing, you don't ask for it or you cut it. Well, that's the point. You have to have. You were talking earlier about what's the difference between 
London and outside of London. So the commercial operators, they have to make the call based on their fare box income alone. Some local authorities, there are other cases where some routes would be subsidised, where either an authority or maybe there's, I don't know, Make some up. There's, there's yeah. a, there's a, Dave uh, Pearson told me he does that on right. routes. Okay, yeah. so there's some stuff there about you know if you've got a express route that goes to the um, the local airport, right. often that's subsidised. Certain corridors will be subsidised, but generally speaking, outside of London, the operator is taking the revenue risk. Okay, that's a big difference. Yeah, that's a big difference. And why there, so. is that different here? Just because the authorities you have to make sure the yep. routes are okay. It, it was it was the, when the acts were set up, and I'm. There's people with better history knowledge yeah, than mine, yeah. but way before my time, there were certain things set up about the way London was going to be put together and whether it was going to be completely deregulated, which is what happens outside of London, or whether it was going to keep this control basis. And that decision was made so that London has this thing where the Transport Authority takes the revenue and the risk, etc., and franchises it out, which is, as I said, it's a diametrically opposite to the rest of the UK. That said... The successive governments now have done two or three things. They First of all, the contracting model that we use is regularly reviewed to see if it's fit for purpose for London. And that's, so far, has always come out that it's the right thing to do. And there's been a drive on a more voluntary basis to get sort of um, quality contracts in place in other areas, so outside of London. Could they do a similar thing that I was describing right. earlier? If they're not paying for the operational cost, is there any way that for they could reward the operator for good frequency adhesion or things like that? And that's been capable of being done in the legislation, and, the, and it's sort of been going on through successive Bus Services Act that they're trying to sort of like encourage that more and more, to try and encourage a bit more of a private-public partnership to make that happen. How do you think the congestion charge is working? Is it, is it seen to, and how is it implemented? Here in the, I was mentioning to you off air that, you know, uh, New York State legislature just approved to let Andy Byford do it in New York City. Uh, and Los Angeles, my buddy Phil Washington is calling for it in LA. So America's kind of looking to see what's happening in the rest of the world. I think, well, our system, as I said, is quite old, actually. It's been for quite of, a while. Yeah, yeah, been there for a while. And it's camera based. It takes a picture of your license deck? It takes a picture of your license deck. It goes through, compares it against a base to say, have you already charged? Okay. And if not, it gives you an amount of time to for you to pay. And at the end of the expiry of that time, if you haven't paid, you get a ticket through the door. You mm. get an enforcement notice. Mm-hmm. And that's recently been... So that's been built on by the current mayor, who's now added in an air quality angle to it. So Sadiq Khan's policy has meant that we've now expanded that to what we call the ULES. So there is an ultra-low emission zone. So not only is there a congestion charge, but if your vehicle is of an age or a type which is a high pollutant, you get an additional charge. Ah, that's in place now? That's in place now. Big headlines yesterday, if you have a look on the, the note, the first month of that thing being in place, and they've got something like... 74, 75% of all vehicles coming into that zone are now, quote, clean, unquote. Okay, yeah. They're of the new standard. And the other 20x percent have um, ended up with some kind of penalty fare, not penalty fare, a, a charge sure, yeah. that they have to pay because they're taking a polluting vehicle into the central city area. Is that money going to come to TFL? Yeah. And how about congestion charge? How much of that comes to TFL? Yeah, that comes into oh, our it comes into our revenue pot. Oh, that's exactly. Good. Yeah. So you're getting cars off the street and using that to help subsidize mass uh, transit. It, it certainly comes in as a revenue line. So as I said, go back to when Ken Livingston set it up. That was how the increase in congestion charges 
it did two things. It produced a revenue stream. It also reduced the number of vehicles in that area. So you did get faster speeds in that area. I was going to ask, is it actually reducing congestion? If you plot speeds, and I think there's enough public data out there, you'll find that it's it's reduced as it should have done, as it was modelled to do. And then time catches up again. That's what I just read recently. So yes. if there is a if there's a generally a one percent increase, right. if you knock the levels back down again, you're still not getting away from a one percent increase year on year. Yeah, and that's you sort of can't avoid that because last time I looked, the population was growing at whatever rate yes, it was, right. and in in metropolitan areas, it's growing faster. What, what is the population of London? It's heard? about eight and a half at the minute, but it's okay. supposed to go up to around ten million by twenty thirty. So wow. your urban areas, as I'm sure is in common with anybody else, is forecast to grow faster. Mm-hmm. So even if you have you've knocked everything yeah. back. By definition, you will see that creeping back in again. How about bus speeds? Do you know how they're doing in the city? Yeah, we've modelled that for, I would suggest, recent history. So we have seen patronage decline, and in trying to understand that, we've been monitoring bus speeds. So bus speeds in the the, the network are now lower than they have been, although what we've done in the last two years is now we've managed to bring them back up a bit. Okay. So what you found is that where we were sort of analysing where you've had loss of revenue you could see that some of the central areas, you also had a correspondingly large loss of speed. So there was definitely a correlation. When you start returning bus speeds through either priority measures or otherwise, it's actually, you know, in some cases, you've got to say, well, if you bring it back by a couple of points a year, you'd think that was doing pretty well. But does the passenger actually notice any benefit? Mm -hmm. Mm, They probably got fed up before. They may have gone elsewhere now, and it's difficult to pull them back. Now, wasn't it Leon Daniels who took Uber... It said Uber couldn't come in for a while, and then they came back, and then you allowed them into the city? I'm not sure it was directly okay. Liam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had lunch with him one time a couple of years ago, and he was telling me about that decision. Excellent. But so you're, you're, um, my point to that question, though, was declining ridership and congestion. Is some of that due, do you think, to these uh, companies like Uber and Lyft that are coming in and taking, you know, kind of the people who don't have to do buses? I, or, I think, I, think, I don't think it's a company thing Mm-mm. there is a change the service there yeah, is TNCs. a complete change i think just generally and this is only my view on this yeah. and some of it we back up with data some of it we don't there is a complete change in mobility in people's things it, it comes in a variety of ways look at customer information mm-hmm. 10 years ago one of the contracts we signed here had a new revolutionary service on it called sms and it provided <laughs> information with sms data that went through and we you know we caught quite a long battle to get that into that contract so that was signed in September 2009. And the previous autumn at some tech show, this bloke called Steve Jobs had just launched <laughs> this iPad thing, whatever that was. Yeah. And of course, you fast forward just a couple of years and the whole increase in app usage, which we responded to and went on open data platforms and things, that just sparked this whole development of apps. And now customer information particularly real-time customer information, it's expected to be there. It used to be, as a bus passenger, you were grateful if somebody left a timetable nailed to a wall of the bus stop you were on. Um, You didn't trust it because it was probably out of date because it hadn't been refreshed (laughs) for ages. But now people expect real-time information to be there 24-7. And if it's not, we probably get more customer complaints over that than anything else if, if you do have a service break. And that's completely changed. And that's yeah. that's the pure drive of the market. And the choice of service has also increased. So again, go back 10 years ago, there was only the bus. Now there is the bus, there is Uber, there is cycle hire schemes, there are, you know, there's a variety of choices that everybody has. So of course that's affecting 
your ridership. Yes. What I don't think it's doing yet is bringing new ridership in. So I think if you're always going to take your car, you're still always taking your car. I think what it probably is doing is moving the goalposts. So those people that were pro-taking transport services, they've now got more choice and are probably moving around. So that's how I see it working. One last question on the congestion charge. Some people are exempt. Public buses are exempt. What about taxis and these TNCs like Uber and Lyft? Yeah, some of the taxis are exempt. The black cabs are exempt. That's what I thought. The private cabs ones aren't. Okay. Um, what, so so Uber and Lyft obviously aren't. They've got to pay when they come in. They're the private cars. Your own personal car yep. driving, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Along those lines, you were talking about people wanting immediate access. The role of the transit agency as the aggregator of all mobility services in the city is happening across the world with the implementation yeah. of mobility as a service. Tell us about what's happening here at TFL along mass lines. Yeah. It, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I struggle with, with it a bit. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's our job. I think um, the Transport Authority needs to do everything it can for people in the city, obviously. That sort of makes sense. But you quickly end up with, if you do that for your own services very, very well, um, you do quickly end up with, you know, I say the majority, but a vast number of people are actually coming in from just outside the city. They're coming in from non-city-owned services. So you think, oh, yeah, well, I'll take a link into those services and provide a more complete picture. And I'm not sure where you draw the line. And I'm really not sure that that's our job. Yes, I understand. Because even within London, where we've got this sort of you quite posted something unusual. today about that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have got quite a privileged and, and unusual model. But if you're not careful, you could end up... I'd go to Penzance, which is 350 miles away from here. Is that supposed to be in our journey planner or not? I don't really think it should be. Okay. You know, getting across London, absolutely right. I'd want to know which tubes to take, alternative buses to take, how long is it going to take to walk? That makes sense. Yes. But it, it's just making sure how you drive that together. What it could be... I mean, we've had... You, and you asked me what I was most proud of. I think... The open data policies that we've had in place since 2011, so all of our service information is published. And in the UK, certainly serving the London market, there is a vast number of apps that deal with the consumer uh, consumer um, interaction. And you'll have seen CityMapper and some of the other ones now are looking to provide combined services. So from a subscription to them, you might get pointed to a shared service, a private service, or one of the public services operated by TfL. So they're almost doing mass. They're doing, so it's a, that's a third party effectively yes, providing right. mass. And that might be the future model, I don't know, because I'm just not sure. Yeah. I, I think the judges are out on this at okay. the moment. I think it can work well where you've got, if you have got all of your population in one area, terrific, it might be a, a sensible thing to do. But at the moment, I'm not sure how we would do that in London. How do you handle demand response and what do you see as the future of that? We've already committed to start demand response trials. If I go back to the model that we have in London where we're providing a service and there is some subsidy involved on the majority of services, what we've constantly got to do is look at those factors of how people are using the network and look at the subsidy money that we have available. And maybe running a service after a particular time period on a regular timetable and it isn't the right thing to do for the processes that we just followed. If your customers are using your services on a very flexible basis, then putting out a regular service is just anathema to that. It just doesn't balance up with their, their thing. So maybe a demand service in some of those areas is the right way of doing it. So we've commissioned a, an on-demand trial. We'll be starting that down in Sutton um, later this year. And we will learn from that what are the models that do work and what are the models that don't work. And it could be that an on-demand service is a way of making 
passenger demand and scarce resources actually match up for a lower subsidy. So I can see it becoming part of our model that we might have normal scheduled buses and we might have demand responsive buses to provide that overall flexibility of service that London needs. On the way here, I rode the two and I used the contactless card. I want to try that. Just tap my credit card. When I was here two years ago and met with Shashi Verma, he had really recently implemented that and had like a 40% market share within six months, something like that. Uh, Give us an update on that. How is uh, contactless cards going? Yeah, I think that was 40% of our contact, uh, sorry, of our... um, on-demand stuff, yeah. Right, so, right. so you're right. It's it's carried on growing. It's 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 um, contactless has just shot up since we, it was induced. So before that, we have what's known as the Oyster Card, which is right. our closed loop system that we um, we still have. That's still yeah. very popular. But going contactless, allowing people to use Apple Pay, the Android, the various e-wallets that are all your yeah. credit card. Yeah, it's much more convenient. If you watch particularly millennials or my kids, anybody like that, you watch them, they go out for a night, they have nothing more than a card in their pocket. They do not want to be done with the faff of having to find a piece of paper or work out what the best fare is. So the trick is not only to provide the validation, but also to get that trust relationship and make sure that the customer is not overcharged for it. Mm -hmm. So it's having... The fair capping. It's the fair capping, the back office... Um, account-based system that really works well. So, And you all had to basically invent that, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> they, they put that together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the payments team have done a fantastic job with that. So they've got that account-based ticketing thing. So if you use it on your travels around today, if you use it three or four times, it caps out. Yeah, I use, so if I use the same credit card, Same right? credit card, yeah. yeah. Use another card, it will think you're somebody right, else. Right, right, yeah. Start over. But, but, yes, you're absolutely right. It caps out in the same way that you want. That's what you want to have with what, your system. What would you say the percentage of users are on the bus now of using that? Do you know, I don't have a latest okay, figure. So I'll yeah. try and send that across. Right. It's, it's, it's moving. It, you know, it's going in the right way. Um, but you don't use cash anymore now, right? Cash was Tell taken. us about that. Yeah, that, so that's... That was cash was in has been in decline for a number of years. So our sequence of events was bringing in the Oyster payment card system that basically provided people with an easy way of doing things. Again, with this account based stuff, discounts available to it, cheaper fares available to that. And basically, what that had done was cash was becoming less and less and less popular. So if you looked at it, cash fares got below eight percent, got below four percent. Wow! You know, got to a very low level because people were using the Oyster card system. It was much more convenient, much better for them to use. So by the time we took it out, you were really mitigating against people that didn't have access to Oyster card. That's what we were really mitigating against. Um, you know, and it does cause, you know, so if you visit London now, most of the tourist stuff have got in about how to pick up your Oyster card at Heathrow or Gatwick or wherever you land and how to do that sort of thing so that you're in as part of the community. Obviously, as we go forward, having an ENV credit card or an e-wallet of some sort, you don't even have to do that. You just land and go, and that's the way that it will work. Have you seen any um, flashback about getting rid of cash in America? There's a lot of people that want to do that, but they're afraid. They, we have something called Title VI, yeah. which says you know people that are unbanked have to be able to have access. So how... Was there any pushback or? Well, there was quite a lot. So there was quite a lot of options there available anyway. But our default option would be to take the closed loop Oyster card, which is which available retail, just... and you can go and pay them cash for it. Okay. You know? Yeah. So you take your cash in and you you do an Oyster card, and you know we have the same thing in in London. There's lots of people who are 
on limited budgets. Right. But those are always the people. What we found through our research was that those are the people who do know how to get the cheapest fare. <laughs> yeah. Because they have to. Right. If you're on low income, you have to make every pound stretch. You're paying attention. So you pay, <laughs> yeah, you pay attention. Mm-hmm. And so you do know that if the best scheme is for you to have a top-up card that's going to give you whatever it is, discount or cap out or do the thing, yep, they'll be all over that. Yeah. And um, yes, you need to help them and make sure they have access to it. But that's the way that, um, uh, that that's the way you deliver on that one. So we've been talking a lot about your accomplishments. Now I'd like to talk about the future. Mm. Where do you think we're going? What what new tech is happening? I mean, I was I met a young man on the on the, the train today who has started a new uh, social media app, and we talked about how everybody's governing oh, their good. life now through that. And I said, you know, think about it. Ten years ago, we didn't even have cell phones, and now they run our lives. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen over the next five to ten years, Simon? Well, if I was, if <laughs> if I knew, knew that, that you wouldn't I wouldn't be here. Right? Yeah, but as, as it relates uh, to transport, uh, at least. Absolutely <laughs> true on that one. I think talking the other day about... Maybe the next three to five years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think innovation's a funny thing, isn't it? There's, there's now a market where there's an awful lot of startups, and... I think any of us that work in technology have either seen or been aware of, of there's some great stuff that's out there, really, really good stuff. What you have to, though, do is take a deep breath about it and go, okay, is that going to be a game changer or is it just a cost reducer? And you've got to also look and say, okay, the fact that they've come up with this great idea, what are they inventing here? Is it a patent or is it actually a new company and a business model for going forward? And that's not always clear sometimes. You see things come through the door and you do wonder about it. Yeah. No disrespect because a lot of the investors in these things have done some fantastic things and these guys are taking the risk and what's making change in our market. Right. Well done. You know, good yeah. for you. Hats off. I couldn't do that. I don't think it's my, my job. It's not my psyche to do that one. But equally, there's quite a lot. You know that they're just going to you know, sell on the IPR. That's what they want to actually end up doing. So that's always a bit of a... A bit of a congestion. But which of these things are going to go forward? I think passenger information is just going to carry on running. Okay. Uh, where's that going to end up? Well, I think we're already in a situation. We're almost post-apps, I would suggest. Yeah. What was the last app you downloaded? Oh, you haven't answered, Paul. That's the first time I've known you not say anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The only last one I downloaded was some games because I was bored the right. other day. Right. I'm not clear that single-function apps are the future in any way, shape, or form, unless it gives you, the, the consumer, something better than you've had before. Yes. Because I think we're already, you talked we're about... maxed out. We're huh? a bit maxed out. You've certainly got your favourites. Yes. You know, if you normally use your airline one or whatever it is right, you do, right. you've got into that mode. And the fact that the next person's got another one, there's always that one about, oh, yeah, we'll give them an incentive like giving them a cup of coffee. And I, how many yeah. times <laughs> do you get told that? Right. You know, I was going to ask you about that, about gamification, So, but keep going well, along the lines, Richard. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's that sort of thing, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm bit, I suppose I'm a bit cynical now that I just, I'm not sure that another app is the right thing. Okay. Like, but there is probably something about saying, can we get passenger information more into people's mainstream lives yeah. as part of their lives rather than as an add-on? Give you an example. If you want to go to the cinema at the minute, you go online and buy your ticket. You then come out and you go into the transport one to okay. do the journey plan. Yes. And you may have to come out and pay by any of the payment providers. That certainly needs joining up. So okay. that if you want to go into the cinema, where are you from? Well, they know that from your location services. Uh They know where you're sat. So do they just want to add on the 
maybe the taxi fare, the bus fare, or whatever it is, as part of that ticket thing. So you're yeah. just doing, I can see that being okay. much more the way. Integrating our Integrating, data into yeah. these other things. Or okay. whatever your favorite platform is. Yeah. You know, maybe your favorite platform is always Google. Maybe you sit in Google. Well, maybe Google owns that relationship with you and brings those services to you. I think that's certainly what their model is. And I don't think they're quite there yet. You know, there's some more to go. But maybe that's... Uh, Maybe that's an approach. That makes sense. So I think I think passenger information becoming more about I suppose more about me. I suppose the way I'm looking at there is more about what I want to consume. The other thing is about disruption information. I think no one's really cracked that, and I'm using TFL as an example. We've not cracked getting the right disruption information to people in a timely fashion. Like what do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean it's a busy network, six hundred odd routes on the bus service, twelve routes on the tube. I will guarantee that something's not working well out there at the moment. There'll oh, be at okay. least one route that's gone broken. Okay, yeah. How do passengers downstream know about it? How do passengers upstream know about it? How do passengers that haven't yet stepped out onto the network yeah. know not to even attempt it and go yes. and reroute somewhere else? Now, your sat-nav, when you're private car driving, is doing that now. It yes. recognises that you're going down a particular freeway, and it says, no, there's a congestion at the end. Do you want us to take you on a diversion? Brings you off two stops earlier, takes you down some different route. We probably need to get to a position that we're doing that for public transport um, users as well. I don't think we really are yet. That's wild, yeah. Anything Discuss. else? <laughs> yeah. That's great. So I think, I think for past, yeah, so, so uh, looking at the future, past your information, yes, I think that's going to change like that. What else will go through? I think there's obviously going to be changes in the way services are provided. Yeah. Um, uh, I said earlier, I think what we'll probably end up though is a different service offering full stop. It won't be about the IT. It'll be, we've talked a lot about, or I have, about timetabled services, services yeah. that are running to a schedule. We all then, you talked about demand response. I reckon there'll be spaces for all of those, but what it'll be is that we'll have different routes behaving at different ways at different times of the day. Mm. Because if you do get that communication with your public correct, that won't matter. Right. Um, but, you know, as, as long as your, your passengers are aware that, oh, yes, a bus will come out as soon as there's more than four of us on this route, fine, that's okay, as long as everybody understands what that means. And that might be a way of saving money. So I can see different transport services coming into the public sector, and obviously we need to do a better job around the technology to feed that. My last question would be about the, you know, the elephant in the room, which is ridership on bus that we've been mm. talking about. Some of these ideas you've thrown out may be a way to increase ridership. Mm. What do you think is going on, and what is the future of, how, of ridership on bus? I think it's about, as I said earlier, it's not necessarily that ridership is going down. It's about matching the supply of resource against yes. the demand from the people. It's no point if everybody, if you do move to a four-day week, what's the point of running the fifth day as if it's the same as the other four days? Right. And until you can answer that question, I don't think you can qualify yourself <laughs> as saying how you can answer it the other way around. So that's, I think, the challenge. Right. Because the... the you know, if, as people's working hours, there's much more flexibility in the workforce than there is. We talked about both hours changes as well as the way that people work and destinations they travel to. You have to understand that and then goodness knows how we're going to do it, but we're going to have to adapt our services and our service policies to match that. When I was visiting Australia last month and interviewing CEOs, it amazed me. I think four of the seven that I interviewed had come from TFL. Right. And that you guys, you know, Howard Collins and some yeah. of the others have yeah. all had their background. Of course, Andy Byford in New York City, you know, had his background here. What is it about TFL that produces such leaders? I mean, it's, it's amazing that you guys have spread out all over the world <laughs> and over the Commonwealth, right? And even to the colonies. I, I think there's... 
I don't know that we do. It's baptism uh, by fire. I, don't, here, I, th- right? I was just going to say, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah, I don't think. No, I don't. Do are we any special? I don't know. I don't think yeah. so. I think we have a different ranges of experience in London, which I think are very interesting to others to to take forward. Yeah. Um, is it anything special? There's that thing about nature versus nurture, isn't it? Right. Just where yes. we are and where we work, you pick up a whole load of ways of operating, and. We have been very successful in cumulatively bringing all of those positions um, and making them happen. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today, Simon. This has been fascinating and interesting, and I wish you the very best in the future as you continue to help TFL advance. Okay. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.